Good evening. American weapons are used in an assault on Russia. Biden visits Hiroshima, a 300-year-old oath prohibiting Catholics from becoming monarchs of England, and a doctor's strike in Queens. Tell Sinai, what do we want? Harry! Tell Sinai, what do we want it? Now! Sinai, what do we want? Harry! With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Thursday, May 25th, 2023. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are closing in on a deal that would raise the government's $31.4 trillion debt ceiling for two years while capping spending on most items. The deal hasn't been finalized, but President Biden on Thursday promised the country will not default on its debt payments. I've made clear time and again defaulting on our national debt is not an option. The American people deserve to know that the Social Security payments will be there. The Veterans Hospital remain open. And that economic progress will be made, and we're going to continue to make it. Default puts all that at risk. Congressional leaders understand that, and they've all agreed there will be no default. And it's time for Congress to act now. Now, I want to be clear that the negotiations we're having with Speaker McCarthy is about the outlines of what the budget will look like, not about default. It's about competing visions for America. Republicans passed a bill that would make huge cuts in important programs that millions of working and middle-class Americans count on. Huge cuts in the number of teachers, police officers, border patrol agents, and increased wait times for Social Security claims. And I won't agree to that. A casualty to the negotiations may be a boon to rich tax evaders. The White House is considering cutting back its plan to hire more IRS auditors who are to target wealthy Americans. If the United States were to default, it could further increase the debt by raising interest rates. A default would also be a sign of instability. The House adjourned Thursday for a week-long break, waiting for news on a deal. But during the debate, Republican conservative Marjorie Taylor Greene earned a round of laughter when she called for decorum. GOP Representative Steve Scalise was speaking. I ask that the House be in order and there be some decorum on the other side. The members are reminded to abide by decorum of the House. The House will be in order. Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene. The possibility of compromise and deep cuts in social services led to House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn arguing Democrats will hold the line. It's clear to me that President Biden is continuing to hold the line as it relates to the types of devastating cuts that Republicans are trying to jam down the throats of the American people, including making sure uh, that he stands up for our veterans. It's unacceptable that on the one hand you have Republicans pretending as if they would never cut anything that will adversely impact the health, the safety or the well-being of veterans and military families, but doing the exact opposite. And it's my expectation uh, that those cuts uh, that have been proposed by Republicans, that they are trying to extract as a result of holding the economy hostage and continuing to threaten default, uh, will not be before the Congress because of the advocacy of the veteran services organizations, the advocacy of these members, 
and President Biden and Democrats continuing to hold the line. Representative Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn, Republicans insist any deal must include spending cuts to slow the growth of the U.S. debt now equal to the annual output of the economy. The founder of the paramilitary group known as the Oath Keepers was sentenced to 18 years in federal prison for seditious conspiracy on Thursday. It's the longest sentence so far of more than a thousand cases of supporters of former President Donald Trump who invaded the Capitol on January 6, 2021, with the intent of preventing Congress from naming President Joe Biden as winner of the 2020 election. Stuart Rhodes showed no remorse, telling Judge Amit Mehta he was a political prisoner. Maida had none of it. He said, you are not a political prisoner, Mr. Rhodes, adding the militia leader presents an ongoing threat and peril to this country and democracy. Numerous other Oath Keepers will be sentenced in coming weeks for their role in the attack. Rhodes' sentence is significant because he never entered the Capitol on January 6th, but he reigned on the grounds directing his followers by walkie-talkie. Heidi Beirich is an expert on American and European extremist movements. She's founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Beirich spoke to the news about the Oath Keepers at the time of their indictment. There are a few decent reasons why they chose this seditious conspiracy case for the Oath Keepers. And that has to do with the amount of planning that was actually done before January 6th by this group including creating a quick reaction force staged at a hotel on the other side of the Potomac, stashing weapons. Saying that they were forming a militia to stop the government to trying to uh, defend the president of the United States and his allies. Well, an interesting thing happened in the whole militia movement, including with the Oath Keepers in the Donald Trump era, is which is they began to see Donald Trump oddly, because he's the president of the United States, as a bulwark against an out-of-control federal government. In other words, he was a personal defender of their rights, you know, gun rights, the kinds of things they care about. It's sort of similar in a way to the QAnon movement that viewed Donald Trump as a grand savior for all of them as well. So Trump began to be seen as separate from the federal government, the federal government remaining an enemy, but in many ways now an enemy of Trump as well. QAnon tighter than ever these days. He definitely is. He's playing their songs at his rallies. People are giving their salutes. He's worn a QAnon button and, and you know posted things on True Social to QAnon. So he's definitely trying to rally these types of people around him. The military and police have uh, harbored quite a few QAnon supporters throughout the country. We're seeing more sort of symbols of the group popping up in places where we don't want it to be, like the military and the police. But unfortunately, when you have a situation where one in four uh, Republicans and one in five Americans believe in QAnon, there are literally millions of supporters and we're going to find them in places like the military. The Oath Keepers tried to deny, but I think is coming out more strongly, is that they're united by sort of a white supremacy type of thing during the Trump era became much more racist against certain populations. Immigrants, for example, mirroring uh, Donald Trump's vicious attacks on on Latinos and immigrants, and also Muslims. In fact, they have been rapidly anti-Muslim before that. But we're also seeing other strains of white supremacy present themselves in the militia world in a way that didn't happen, say, 15 years ago. A strong, powerful streak of racist white supremacy that feeds into sort of an American fascism like he talked about in his book? White supremacy really reasserted itself 
um, in the public square, and Donald Trump basically gave license to people making those feelings uh, public in ways that they weren't um, before. And of course, we see tons of candidates in the Republican Party pushing the Great Replacement, which is just white supremacy, straight up. So this stuff is being mainstreamed and coming to the fore in ways that it hadn't been in a long time. You know, when we, of course, in this country have a long history of white supremacy, we legislated it, right? Until the 1960s, it was, you know, black people by law were denied many rights. So it's not surprising this come up, but Donald Trump really activated those sentiments and brought them to the fore. Why is it so difficult for the United States to get past, you know, the Civil War, which has been over for 150 years, much less the uh, other movements after that to try and keep black people down? Well, unfortunately, we're in a terrible situation in which major figures of the Republican Party don't feel a responsibility to denounce racism or QAnon conspiracists in their ranks. So there's nobody checking this from the right, which is a, a bit of a disaster. You know, in earlier eras, like when Senator George Allen used the slur word for black people in 2006 in a campaign, he was tossed by the Republicans. We don't have that anymore. So we're down to sort of calling it out, you know, investigating it, like with the January uh, 6th Select Committee. Um, we don't have that. I wish we had that break point on the right to stop it. Heidi Byrick is an expert on American and European extremist movements. She's founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Although seditious conspiracy carries a 20-year sentence, prosecutors asked for 25 years and sought a terrorism enhancement for Rhodes and other Oath Keeper defendants. Rhodes, 58, is a Yale-educated lawyer. On Tuesday, Russian troops repelled a cross-border raid from Ukraine. Russia claims it killed 75 attackers in a day-long battle. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov. Look, they are Ukrainian militants from Ukraine. There are many ethnic Russians living in Ukraine, but they are Ukrainian militants anyway. Shortly after the attack, photographs appeared showing United States-made vehicles amongst the charred wreckage of the fighting. If the gear was used within Russia's territory, it could violate agreements between the United States and Ukraine, prohibiting the use of U.S. hardware on Russian territory. Pentagon spokesperson General Pat Ryder. At this point in time, uh, we have not authorized any transfer of equipment. Uh, they have not asked for transfer of equipment to so-called paramilitary organizations. And we've put in uh, place some very uh, strict protocols in terms of end-use monitoring and have had good success working with our Ukrainian partners toward that end. So again, we'll keep an eye on it uh, and just leave it there. The battle took place in the Belgorod region, about 45 miles north of the city of Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. Moscow blamed the raid on Ukrainian military saboteurs. Kyiv portrayed the incident as an uprising against the Kremlin by Russian partisans. Speaking on Wednesday, State Department spokesperson Matt Miller says the U.S. is keeping an eye on how Ukraine uses its American-supplied military gear. The government of Ukraine has shown that they take the responsibility to safeguard arms seriously. It's been something that's been a matter of dialogue between the United States and Ukraine since even before the conflict, and we began to provide them uh, with the assistance they need to defend themselves. We're going to work to continue to ensure that the assistance we provide them uh, complies with all U.S. laws and other applicable requirements, and we will continue to communicate to the Ukrainians what has been our very clear policy, which is we don't encourage or enable attacks uh, beyond the borders of Ukraine. 
Russian territory and Russia-occupied areas of Ukraine have also been hit by drones and explosions that have derailed trains. The Freedom of Russia Legion said in its Telegram channel that the goal was to liberate the region. The group's leader says they are a right-wing organization. In the ongoing Ukraine offensive meant to take back the 20% of the country now under Russian control, fighting has been heavy, with Russia claiming to have fully taken the strategic city of Bakhmut, a claim denied by Ukraine. Last week, leaders of the pro-United States economic bloc, known as the Group of Seven, or G7, met in Hiroshima, Japan, warning China and North Korea against building up their nuclear arsenals. The leaders also announced more sanctions against Russia. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, also attended the meeting in person, asking for more military support. Zelensky met with President Joe Biden. The U.S. later promised to provide training for Ukrainian pilots to fly high-tech F-16 fighter jets. The meeting took place in Hiroshima in 1945. It was the first city of two, the other was Nagasaki, to be obliterated by atomic bombs. The bombs were developed, built, and dropped on the cities by the United States during World War II. President Joe Biden made note of the location in his speech to world leaders. Being in this city and visiting the memorial on Friday was a powerful reminder of the devastating reality of nuclear war and our shared responsibility to never cease our efforts to build for peace. And together with the leaders of the G7, we have, reiter we have reiterated our commitment to continue to work toward a world free from the threat of nuclear weapons. The bomb, named Little Boy, was dropped in Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, at 8.15 in the morning. President Harry Truman made the announcement to the nation. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. Three days later, a second bomb named Fat Man was dropped on Nagasaki. Both bombs killed upwards of 200,000 civilians. The co-founder of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki Peace Committee is John Steinbach, a group that works closely with atomic bomb survivors. He says Biden's visit to Hiroshima is an insult to peace-loving people worldwide. Daniel Ellsberg and others have written, literally written books about how the implicit policy of the United States in particular from the beginning has been nuclear weapons are a threat to carry out their policies. You have the capitalist economy, you have the military, but then ultimately you have the threat of nuclear weapons to get your way. How do they get Japan and the city of Hiroshima to host these kind of things when it seems like such an insult to them? You have an LDP government in Japan for actually almost forever, with I think one brief exception, and they are a strongly neoliberal, a neoconservative party. 
the A-bomb survivors believe that the Japanese government has long, long had a program where they have already put together all the pieces for a nuclear bomb, but they can't do it because the public opinion would not permit it. So what they've been doing instead is fully integrating the Japan Defense Forces into NATO, spending huge amounts of money on hosting the military bases. They are totally on board with the NATO adventure and to a lesser degree, but South Korea as well. I just remember that movie, which I love so much. Uh, many of us have seen more should see it. Dr. Strangelove, we're going to go toe-to-toe with the Ruskies in nuclear thermonuclear combat? Well, yes, that pretty obviously is a risk. And you consider and you look objectively at what's happened in Ukraine. The United States expected Russia was going to fold. The economy was going to implode, and this would be over very, very quickly. And to the contrary, Russia's economy is stronger than ever. China and Russia uh, basically have formed a much stronger alliance. The rest of the world basically does not trust the United States. And, uh, and this, this is uh, you know, one of the greatest foreign policy fiascos, probably the greatest in the history of the United States. And as the American public becomes aware of this, then I expect that there is going to be more and more and more opposition to what's going on. And as that happens, the neocons and the neoliberals in the government are going to get more and more and more likely to pull the trigger. And so, in my opinion, the likelihood is that nuclear weapons are used, it's much more likely that it's going to be the United States rather than Russia that uses them. And How long have you been doing this kind of work? I've been doing this kind of work since the 1960s, late 1960s. You've seen a lot. I've seen a lot. I agree with the bullet of the atomic scientists that we, except for possibly a brief time in back in 63, 62, 63, that the world has never been closer to nuclear war. And, uh, you know, and as the Ukraine situation uh, evolves, as tensions with China become greater and greater and greater, and the consequences of those tensions become clear it's going to take a very strong organized effort on the part of everyone to prevent nuclear catastrophe john steinbach is co-founder of the hiroshima nagasaki peace committee russian president vladimir putin has made several threats to use nuclear weapons if russia faces a threat to its existence although some u.s observers say the threat is low others claim the threat of armageddon is as high as 20 percent Earlier this month, the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth realms, in other words, former colonies of the once British Empire, saw the coronation of new monarchs, King Charles III and his wife, now Queen Camilla. The coronation is fundamentally a religious ceremony held at Westminster Abbey after a procession from Buckingham Palace, the official residence. The procession included representatives of numerous world faiths, including the Roman Catholic faith. But the hostility between British Protestants and Rome has a long history. For centuries, a new British monarch must swear he'll never become a Catholic. I, Charles, do solemnly and sincerely, in the presence of God, profess, testify, and declare that I am a faithful Protestant, and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments which secure the Protestant succession to the throne, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my powers according to law.
The oath was begun after decades of bloody war in Great Britain between royalists led by the king and Protestants led by Parliament. In later years, Britain conquered Catholic Ireland and established Protestant colonies. The result was centuries of conflict, most recently known as the Troubles. A leading expert on Northern Ireland is Father Sean McManus, a Catholic priest. He's founder of the Irish National Caucus. It has existed since 1701, for goodness sake, 322 years ago. And it exists not in secret, not in a coven type of underground movement, but in your face, in plain sight, in splendor before the world, in a religious service. The King of England, in order to become king or queen, he must swear under oath, administered in a church, in a Eucharistic service, to uphold Protestant succession to the throne of England. In case people are confused and not fully understanding what succession to the throne means, the Royal Family website helpfully explains what that means, and it states, and I quote, a Roman Catholic is specifically excluded from succession to the throne. That's for the public and the world to see on the website, which states, again, helpfully, this is the official website of the British royal family. There are countries in the Middle East, for example, that have similar rules. What's so different about England? Yes, and maybe Americans are not too surprised uh, by that happening in other places. But now, look, allegedly England is the mother of parliaments, seen as a totally up-to-date modern democracy. And yet it has this rule where the King of England has to swear a false, discriminatory, anti-Catholic oath. Quite extraordinary. And Americans don't seem to grasp it. And here's the simple parallel. How would Americans today feel if there was a clause in the American Constitution prohibiting a black person being president of the United States? And imagine if the Episcopalian Church administered that oath in splendor and magnificent for the entire world to see. Does it actually touch the average person's lives, or is it a a relic, a remnant that's just something that somebody says? Well, the ordinary English person in the street doesn't pay much attention to it, really, because they're a very secularized society. Here's the rub, and here's the true danger. In Northern Ireland, to the Protestants who support the royal family and, and the union with Britain in that sectarian artificial entity of Northern Ireland that was created in 1920, it means an awful lot because it sanctions their bigotry and anti-Catholicism. 
they can posture as simply being loyal to the British Constitution. And if the British Constitution says that Catholics cannot get the top job in England, then their attitude, the Protestants' attitude in Northern Ireland to Catholics, is valid and justified because Catholics are inferior. In Northern Ireland right now, there's rumblings, but at the same time, they seem to put a lot of that behind them. Do you think it matters as much even in Northern Ireland these days? I think it does, because now remember this, it's been 70 years since the last coronation took place. All of that wouldn't be too fresh in people's mind, except in the extremists in Northern Ireland who are anti-Catholic and they see their job as holding the six counties of Northern Ireland, holding it for Britain, keeping the Catholics down. That was their function from the very beginning. That's the reason why the British government planted them in Ireland, for that twofold reason. Keep the Catholics down and keep Ireland, all of Ireland, loyal to the throne and king of England. It still means an awful lot. That is not so much the point. Can you imagine if that clause was similar one in, in the American Constitution? Can you imagine how that would have kept alive white supremacy and white bigotry and hatred of blacks in America. That's the point. That's the insidious nature of that. It's not really important. Has it influenced 10 people or a million people? Or th- It is intrinsically false, intrinsically wrong, intrinsically discriminatory. And why in God's name, in a religious service, in 2023, in magnificence and splendor, why would such an ugly oath be given and administered to the King of England? That's the point. What's the remedy? Some people, in an attempt to excuse that, says, oh, the King is also head of the Anglican Church. Well, that's no excuse. That simply indicates the wisdom of the drafters of the American Constitution, who knew that by having an established church, a lot of people would be discriminated against. Therefore, they decided there would not be an established church in America. There should not be an established church in England. Surely the royal family in England should have religious freedom. And if Charles wants to become a Catholic in the morning, he should have that right. But do you know what happens by law, established by law? Do you know what happens if he uh, does become a Catholic? He automatically ceases to be the king of England. And in a beautiful phrase, in the law, in the Constitution, and the people are absolved of their allegiance. Anything like that? Growing up, and I was very familiar with, uh, I'm almost 80, and, and that's uh, I'm a few years older than Prince Charles. And watching him over the years, I always had a certain liking for the fellow. I thought he was a likable fellow, a well-meaning guy, a good guy. So this is not a criticism of him personally. It's the structure. It's the system. I hope maybe that King Charles now will be the first king of England to get rid of that horrible anti-Catholic law. 
there's awareness there. But you see, if you cover up something in beauty and splendor and magnificence, you apparently can get away with it. Father Sean McManus is a Catholic priest. He's founder of the Irish National Caucus. He says Americans should be appalled by what he says is Britain's state-sponsored anti-Catholicism. Rock and soul superstar Tina Turner died in Switzerland this week. Her success began with her husband Ike Turner, but her 16-year marriage was marred by domestic abuse, leading to a dramatic separation and lawsuit. Tina Turner went on to rebuild her career and surpass the success shared with her former husband. She eventually made her home in Europe, where she said her music was received better than in the United States. Turner eventually remarried and moved to Switzerland. Tina Turner's hits include What's Love Got to Do With It and the song she had recorded with Ike Turner, Proud Mary. And closer to home, resident doctors ended a three-day strike at Elmhurst Hospital Center in Queens after reaching a tentative deal on Wednesday that they say brings them closer, earning as much as their counterparts in Manhattan. What do we want? Parity! When do we want it? Now! Tell Sinai, what do we want? Parity! And tell Sinai, when do we want it? Now! More than 150 unionized resident physicians at Elmhurst started the five-day strike on Monday. They're demanding equal pay with colleagues at Mount Sinai Hospital. It was the city's first doctor strike in 33 years. A psychiatry resident at Elmhurst is known as Dr. K. He says doctors' desire to help is being taken advantage of by hospital administrators. We go into this field because we want to help as many people as we can. And of course, we do it without question because we feel that it is our duty. But Mount Sinai is exploiting our heart that we care for these patients and by paying us less. It's heartbreaking to find that out when you know that your employees don't look out for you. Isn't it supposed to be tough to be a resident? They're known to have long hours, uh, low salaries. Uh, that's the training period. Residents often work long hours. It's been going on for generations and generations. Personally, me going to the field, I know it was going to be tough. Residency is going to be hard, and it was expected for all of us to work 24-hour shifts, work 80 hours a week, every single week, and being exhausted. But we think that the COVID pandemic, um, when it started, that exposed the dirty underbelly of this huge medical corporation and the medical training system and that is what is pretty much the reason why we're doing this and where does it go from here for right now we have authorized to strike for five days we're going to be striking all the way through friday through saturday morning at 6 59 a.m that's when um, we stop the strike what we really hope is to make sure that mount sinai pays us Barely want Mount Sinai to pay us the same as the main campus Mount Sinai residents get paid. We work together. We go to main campus to work. The main campus residents come to Elmhurst to work. So essentially, we're doing the same job, and it's just 
atrocious to sit next to your colleague knowing they're being treated much better. Do you think it might have something to do with the ethnic uh, makeup of the uh, patients and of the doctors and staff has something to do with it? A lot of the staff and the patient population as well are immigrant doctors, immigrant patients. A lot of the patients are underinsured, unemployed, if anything, undocumented. And a lot of the staff are, are visa holders coming from a different country, trying to you know, treat the community that's been hit the hardest. It may seem that they know that we won't need more money. We're not sure what the narrative is, but that is just systemic discrimination. And we think that because we are an immigration, because of our immigration status, they may feel that they can treat us as second-class doctors, which is not the case. We need to be treated as equal. I noticed a lot of psychiatrists on strike. Is there anything to that? A lot of psychiatrists, we tend to, ours are just as hard, but we think that our administration, at least from the department inside Elmhurst Hospital, has been very supportive. It means that there is less pushback and there's more ease for us to go into strike and to fight for our rights for fair pay. And it might not be similar to the other departments as well. This is a big shout out to the Elmhurst Psychiatry Department Administration. Dr. Kajam Sakchai is psychiatry resident at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. He's more commonly known as Dr. K on his rounds. In more local news, New York City Mayor Eric Adams held a press conference last week announcing new initiatives to deal with the reported surge in shoplifting in the last year. It's estimated theft accounts for a $300 billion loss for businesses in New York City. Mayor Adams. Uh, When you get a chain store that closes down, uh, you lose the employment. And those individuals who are employed there, they're out of employment. Uh, It hurts the individuals uh, who uh, are assaulted because of this action. And it just hurt and bottlenecks our entire criminal justice system. And so our goal at the Retail Theft Summit was to sit down and break down into its pieces of what is the problem. And as I use the analogy all the time, what are the many rivers that fed uh, the sea of retail thefts? And we, we walk. Shoplifting has become City Hall's latest crime-fighting focus as violent crimes like shootings and murder have continued to drop. NYPD Commissioner Key Chan Sewell says shoplifting complaints have nearly doubled in the last year to 64,000, adding arrests have declined. She claims one-third of all shoplifting arrests involve 327 people. Again, Mayor Adams. In 2022, we made over 22,000 retail theft arrests. And here's the number that jumps off at all of us. Uh, 327 repeat offenders were responsible for 30 of 30% of those arrests. 327 people were responsible for the 22,000 arrests. And remember, those arrests, not actions. Many of them uh, did the theft and got away with it. But there's a clear pattern that we talk about all the time of the extreme recidivist that's driving much of we see in the problems in this in the city those 327 individuals were arrested more than 6600 times for an average of 20 times each and we can't just continue to allow recidivist behavior 
to harm our city. It doesn't matter if it's retail theft or if it's violent crimes. Meanwhile, store owners have been organizing, calling for special NYPD retail theft units, felony charges for assaulting store employees, and the increased use of bail. But other small business leaders say their stores face a more insidious threat than hungry shoplifters, ever spiraling commercial rents. Unlike protections afforded tenants of New York's nearly 1 million rent-regulated residential tenants, commercial renters are at the mercy of landlords when their leases run out. In recent weeks, tenants learned the Rent Guidelines Board, an organization of landlords and tenant advocates that sets rent increases for rent-stabilized apartments, voted to increase residential rents by 4 to 7 percent this year, leading to protests and walkouts among renters. A proposed bill in the city council, the Commercial Rent Stabilization Act, would impanel a board to set percentage increases for stores. Advocates like Lower East Side City Council candidate Ali Ryan say the law would protect mom-and-pop stores from landlords seeking deep-pocketed renters. The city council members who chose to protest, all of the city council members, including my opponent, council member Carlina Rivera, also support creating a commercial rent guidelines board for commercial tenants in the city. It was a bit hypocritical to me that they are protesting rent increases for residents, but they're creating a board to create rent increases for commercial tenants. Why is that? We've had empty storefronts for decades. One part of the problem is the rent is high in Manhattan specifically because you had speculative investment groups buying buildings and then you also had banks pitted against chain stores as well as mom and pop businesses vying for these storefronts. And so banks and chains can pay a higher rent than the mom-and-pop stores, but then when they have left, the empty storefronts because the mom-and-pop stores can't pay that high rent. And then secondly, there's a bigger issue dealing with the lease renewal. Back in the mid-1980s, there was legislation proposed called the Small Business Job Survival Act. It's been proposed in and out of city council for 35, 40 years. What that legislation is trying to do is to give commercial tenants rights and mainly small businesses the right to renew their lease, the right to get a 10-year lease. So small businesses in particular can have the confidence and stability that they're going to be in their location for a long time, for 10 years, so they can get a loan, so they can grow, they can hire new workers. What's interesting, the Corey Johnson administration, when he was Speaker of the Council, he held a hearing in 2018. My opponent, Councilmember Carlina Rivera, was on sponsoring the Small Business Job Survival Act. They had a hearing, but it was never taken to a vote. Meanwhile, Steve Levine introduced in 2019 the Commercial Rent Stabilization Act. Carolina Rivera also signed on as a sponsor of that bill. That had a hearing as well, and it, and it didn't go anywhere. So in our current council member term, Carlina actually had the choice of introducing both of these bills, and she chose 
to introduce the landlord-friendly bill that creates Commercial Rent Stabilization Act. And many of the city council members that you saw today, I'm sorry, saw this past week jumping on stage, Sandy Nurse, Tiffany Caban, Chai Osi, they have signed on as sponsors for the Commercial Rent Stabilization Act, which does essentially the same thing to create a board that would create rent increases for commercial tenants. Right now, the rents are too high. We still have businesses closing, and not necessarily due to COVID, not necessarily due to inflation, not necessarily due to people choosing to buy online. Those are all factors. Creating a commercial rent guidelines board isn't designed to help the rent be reduced. As we saw this week with the rent guidelines board, one of the members, one of the tenant members actually proposed a negative rent increase, negative one percent trying to reduce the rent increase that was vetoed by the rest of the board. The rent guidelines board was created by the state, even though it's filled with mayoral appointees, it was created at the state for city council to try to create a commercial rent guidelines board at the city level. I don't know if that will pass the legal as well. Basically, a guidelines board is it reflects the reality that New York City is run by real estate interests. Yes. Yes, I am saying that because a rent guidelines board does not, it's designed to keep the rents where they're at and that they only go up. They're not designed to go down. As Mayor Koch said many decades ago, if you can't afford Manhattan, move. It's easy to say that, but the reality is people really do want to live here. There was a report that actually just came out that the majority of New Yorkers can't afford to live here. So when you flippantly say, oh, if you can't live here, just move away. But the reality is, is that you're creating an empty city. Like, what makes New York City great? Allie Ryan is candidate for city council in District 2 on the Lower East Side. Advocates say there's an increasing number of empty storefronts in New York, contributing to the impression that the city is entering a downturn. And in news from the smoke front, Saturday, May 6th, was a beautiful late spring day with lots of sunshine and smoke as hundreds of cannabis aficionados marched down Broadway to celebrate two years of legal pot in New York State. It was also the 50th anniversary of the first pot parade and rally in the city, organized by the radical group, the Yippies, and their friends. Since then, the parade has survived through years when hundreds of arrests were made by former prosecutor and tough-on-pot mayor Rudy Giuliani. There were limits on public gatherings under COVID restrictions and years of poor weather that frustrated turnout. But New York State's legalization moves have not only reinvigorated the parade, but brought an unlikely partnership with the city. Dashida Dawson is founding director of Cannabis NYC. She served as a day's MC. At this moment, I'm going to encourage everyone to read all of the information that comes out of the Office of Cannabis Management. Get very familiar with all of the FAQs, the draft regulations, the webinars that are available on our site, cannabis.ny.gov. 
But most importantly, if you really intend to have a business, I need you to be working on a business plan. The moment for CARD is sort of unprecedented. What we did was we gave licenses and then asked people to build business plans. That's not the way that it normally works. Normally you build your plan and then go access a license. So please take this moment in time, build your plan so that when your licensing opportunity comes online, you can grab it and go hit the ground running. Additionally, if you want to work in this space, we have a number of institutions in our city right here. We have a couple of universities. We have non-matriculation. We have courses that you can not enroll in the college and just go sign up for these classes at various um, colleges, at LIM, at Lehman, also at Megar Evers College. We've got college and BMCC. Thank you for that. Top federal and state politicians were in attendance, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who promised more laws liberating cannabis at the federal level. I'm working on Congress to catch up to New York. But today we are becoming the over in New in America, the overwhelming consensus is that cannabis should be legalized. They say the states are the laboratories. Well, the laboratories have proven that the cannabis legalization works. Let's do it in all of America. Yippie stalwart Aaron Kay, known for throwing comedic pies in the faces of prominent conservatives in the 70s, has been there almost every year since the first pop parade. Hard to believe. I've been going to smoke-ins here in New York ever since 73. I only missed one, the one in 75. Well, I like the older ones better. We, there's more grass smooths, more raunchier. We're much younger, but I may be 73, but my heart still belongs with those smokings. You see, every day is National Marijuana Day, like it or not. Tell it to the man. Every day is National Marijuana Day. And and the thing is, there's a lot of issues that have to be dealt with. This, this law has a lot of issues. They're going out. There is a class war happening in the movement. There's an old song you got to think of by Pete Seeger. Which side are you on? That's it. While controversies abound over the success of New York's attempt to reserve cannabis licenses to communities targeted by the war on drugs, the issues were put aside as music played, punch and smoke wafted in the breeze, and a good time was had by all. And that's the news for Thursday, May 25th, 2023. The news is produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.